This reading is an adaptation of the Kol Nidra prayer by UU minister Mark Bellatini. The very first prayer of Yom Kippur, the prayer that opens several worship services, is called the Kol Nidra. Let me give you a little background on it. It means all vows, and it's actually a legal term. It refers to the retraction the taking back of vows, not the ones that one has already made, not the vows that someone has already made, but the vows that one will make in the year to come. Now, this is strange to us, this concept of of taking back things that we haven't said yet. (laughs) Strange that we would pray to God for this. But the rabbis hasten to add at this point that the taking back of vows is not about the ones that are made between people, but the vows made between ourselves and God. It it doesn't refer to marriage vows, for example, but Bellatini speculates that Kol Nidra may have come into practice during a time when Jews were forced to convert to Christianity, particularly in Spain during the Middle Ages. And so this prayer is a way to undo the forced conversions, those false promises that were made, but not really vows of the heart. Mark Bellatini's Kol Nidra prayer. Gone are the promises we made because of pressure or praise. Gone are the promises made because of shame or guilt. Gone are promises and vows we made because of habit, because of custom, or because of confusion. Gone they are, vanished. I see them no longer. They are no more. Gone the excuses for why I can't. Gone the vows I made to confirm my vanity. Gone the dreams I dreamed that cut me off from everyone else's dream. Gone my vow never to have dreams so that I could carry my future in my dark little pocket. Gone, vanished, just like that. As magically as sunset, as wondrously as moonset, it disappears. This habit of refusing to live on the edge. The paper is blank. The field is empty. The map has not yet been made. The guarantees are gone. And thus, now... I can begin to set down my burdens and define myself no longer by my failings. Nishmat heye tevarek vikiri libi yeshir kol od nishma bekiri. And now the breath of my life will bless the cells of my being Sing in gratitude, awakening. A few years ago, long after I had 
joined First Universalist Church, I had the opportunity to come here as a visitor. When I attended the Rosh Hashanah service that was by the Shir Tikva congregation. Some of you may know that when we sold our former church building at 50th and Girard, we entered into an agreement with the, the Shir Tikva congregation, whereby they would come and hold their high holy days services here in our sanctuary. Their, their uh, sanctuary being too small for that. So two days out of the year, in the autumn of the year, this building, which was built in 1926 for the Adath Jezrun congregation, becomes a synagogue again. So when I came here for the Rosh Hashanah service, marking the new year in the Hebrew calendar, it was really quite striking to enter a building packed with people, my church home, packed with people, none of whose faces I knew. It was really something. And so there was a lot of conversation, and they all knew each other, and I got to come here and be a visitor. So I took my place up in the balcony, and I loved watching this service unfold, this ancient rite, this ancient ceremony, which was brand new to me. And I learned a few things about our building Bob, you grew up in this congregation, did you not? In, in Adath, Bob Friedman was, you were bar mitzvahed here, is that right? So, so this platform is called the Bima in a, in a Hebrew congregation. And I wondered why there were so many aisles. Um, as Kate knows, if you ever try to plan a wedding in this sanctuary, there's all this conversation with the bride and groom about which aisle is the bride going to come up. There's not one central aisle like there is usually in a, in a Christian church. But what happens in the Torah service is that when the Torah, the sacred scroll, is taken off the bima, it's walked down the outer aisles and back up the inner aisles so that it can pass through the congregation and as many people as possible lean out to kiss or to touch the Torah. And, and oftentimes they'll, they'll touch it with the edge of their prayer shawl and then kiss the prayer shawl or the prayer book that they touch it with. And in this way, as many people as possible can reach and, and touch the representation, these holy words of God. Well, you explain that to a bride, and they really don't care that much about it, and they <laughs> still have to go on. But now I know why we, why we have these aisles. I like to think that we share our space, however briefly, with another congregation, that this house of worship, where the words carved over the, in, the entrance outside are the great Shema. Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. A Unitarian sentiment in the original sense of the word, if there ever was one. My husband likes to say that we believe in, at most, one God. I like to think that our progressive church home makes a welcoming space for that progressive Jewish congregation and that they, in turn, leave traces of holiness for us when we return 
to sit in the pews that have been warmed by their bodies. And so it seems appropriate to me that on this New Year's service, this first day of the year, first Sunday of the year of a new decade, and as we begin a month with the theme of forgiveness, that we take inspiration from the days of awe in the Jewish calendar. The new year at Rosh Hashanah celebrates the creation of the world and culminates in Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of at-one-ment. Atonement, literally at-one-ment. Those ten days are set aside between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, are set aside for the careful examination of who we are as we strive to understand where we have failed others, where we have failed ourselves, where we have failed God. The theme of repentance, repentance literally to turn away from the past, puts the focus on acting differently in the coming year, on becoming our better selves. In this deep self-examination, we become aware of what binds us, both that to which we are happily bound, the family and friends of our choosing, the activities that give us joy, the art that gives us beauty, but also that to which we become slavishly bound, addiction, destructive relationships, resentment, cynicism, fear. So the common practice of our secular New Year's resolutions is not just a selling point for glossy magazine covers with the latest weight loss plan or clear the clutter tips. They save them for January, you know. It has a deep spiritual root that holds the promise of hope in the face of fear and cynicism, in the presence of addiction or abuse, as an answer to the corrosive power of resentment. In 12-step programs, we say that having resentment is like eating poison and hoping the rat will die. The Hebrew practice of teshuvah, meaning repentance, this extensive examination of the self will hopefully lead to forgiveness, forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others, God's forgiveness of us. And this this making our relationships right leads to at-one-ment, leads to reconciliation with each other and with our place in the universe. It leads to alignment. We know when we are out of alignment. And this time is set aside to let us see it clearly without recrimination so that we can come back into alignment and understand our place in the cycle of life, the reality of things. As we heard in the reading, the Kol Nidra prayer is the very first prayer of Yom Kippur. And the community would would have engaged together in several days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in this extensive self-examination and have arrived ready for this prayer, uh, 
this legal formula that declares null and void those vows and promises we make and fail to fulfill in the coming year. So Yom Kippur begins with a recognition that no matter how hard we try, no matter what our resolve, that our best intentions can go astray. We're only human, really. In this room, we don't talk much about sin and confession, but we acknowledge that we come up short between each other, with the world around us, of our own ideals. This is a time of examining that, coming up short, and saying we lean toward our better selves, knowing, knowing that we'll miss the mark sometimes, and yet we strive ever for that mark. Reaching our best selves is not about weight loss or organizational skills. Not that I want to put the kibosh on anybody's resolve. You're doing good. (laughs) Worthy goals, though they may be. But Kol Nidra is about beginning again with what is most important. Not the vows in which our words are cheap. I promise to do better. Not where the words are cheap. But about who we are in our deepest relationships with self, with each other, with community, with the earth, with the planet, with God. When we release all that stuff, all the cheap talk and bravado and ego, then we can begin to set down our burdens and define ourselves no longer by our failings. Then the cells of our being can sing in gratitude, awakening. As it happens, our cells are hardwired for this kind of release. Developmental and social psychologists tell us that forgiveness is a motivational construct by which they mean we have something to gain by forgiveness. We know this in our bodies. Now they've proven it. Good. The Forgiveness Institute at the University of Wisconsin in Madison has published several stories on the correlation between the emotional heart and our physical health. But they're quick to point out that false forgiveness will not do the trick. It won't work if our forgiveness involves forgetting the offense or ignoring or denying it or excusing it or overlooking it or minimizing it or tolerating it or exonerating it or condoning it. Nor nor does forgiveness take the place of justice. Justice must roll down like waters and righteousness become an ever-flowing stream. Half measures will avail us nothing. But an honest assessment of looking where we're out of alignment, where we are disunited, can help lead us to at-one-ment, where we may begin again in love. 
We're told that a famous Jewish practitioner of forgiveness was Jesus of Nazareth. Some of his most oft-quoted words involve forgiveness. In a prayer, son to father who would grieve his death, father forgive them, they know not what they do. In a prayer he taught to those who followed his disciplines, his disciples, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Neil Douglas Klotz, who's a poet and teacher and translator, translates this line from Aramaic as loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt. He follows this with a meditation. Let me read this. Loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands of others we hold of others' guilt. Forgive our hidden pasts, our secret shames, as we consistently forgive what others hide. Lighten our load of secret debt as we relieve others of their need to repay. Erase the inner marks our failures make just as we scrub our hearts of others' faults. Absorb our frustrated hopes and dreams as we embrace those of others with emptiness. Untangle the knots within so that we can mend our heart's simple ties to others. Compost our inner stolen fruit as we forgive others the spoils of their trespassing. Loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt. You may remember the story a few years ago. In October of 2006, in a town called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, there was an Old Order Amish one-room school. And on an October day, a gunman went into the school and killed five schoolgirls. It was a horrible, horrible tragedy, a terrible waste of life, a rare and unthinkable occurrence. But what made the news beyond that was the reaction of the, the Amish community. As they grieved, as they encountered the worst that a community can encounter, they also reached out. And as they attended to their own grief, they attended to the grief and spiritual needs of the wife and children of the gunman. They took food, they attended his funeral, and they understood that these innocent people would have to live with that action for the rest of their lives. 
They believed so deeply in the teachings of this man from Galilee that they lived that faith in a way that opened their hearts to forgiveness. One of the fathers said, forgiveness means giving up the right to revenge. Forgiving means giving up the right to revenge. I don't think I could do that. I think that calls something that is so much deeper than I know. And yet I am absolutely compelled by that story that a response to evil can be a more open heart and that healing that comes from the cells within reaches out more broadly than can be imagined. That faith in action inspires me. So as we enter this new year, this new decade, we can't imagine what we will see. There will be tragedy, to be sure. There will be horror beyond our imagining. And yet there will also be great joy. There will be new beauty. Our eyes will behold things and will say, Oh! Our hearts will be lifted. They will be opened. They will be broken. They will be mended. We will be in community together in ways we can't imagine. And so what might it mean for us as people, as religious people bound together in the pursuit of common good, people who come here with a belief in a love that is so absolute that we call it universal? What might it mean for us to gird ourselves with forgiveness, to put on a belt of strength that says, I know I will fall short, and if I will, I know you will. And yet, I walk into the new day, into the new decade, into the next moment, girded, strengthened by the possibility of forgiveness. What might it mean to set down our burdens and define ourselves no longer by our failings? How might we begin to loose the cords of mistakes that bind us and to let go of the strands we hold of others' guilt? What health, what heart health, indeed what heart magic might flow from a practice of forgiveness so strong and so true that we could each moment forgive ourselves and each other and begin again in love? Let's find out.